The scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and, the, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You did not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And then the ten heard it, and they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise great authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. I did forget to send off the children. Um, yeah, so let's send them off uh, to have their own time of uh, scripture uh, and teaching. Yeah. Okay, uh, guys, let me pray before we get into God's Word. Father, we thank you for your Word. Thank you that you actually uh, give us something that we can read and, and learn from uh, with clarity. Uh, shows us who you are, helps us to make sense of who we are. And Lord, I just ask that you would speak to us today through your word, by your spirit. Lord, I ask uh, that you would remake us and reform us into the image of Christ. Um, help us, God. We, we just desperately need your grace and to actually come here and sit down on a Sunday morning and to be moved. So I ask that you would do that by grace. In Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so at our place, um, at our new place in Wentworth Point, Heidi and I, we have a small collection of board games uh, that we've bought since moving into our new place. And the motivation behind it really was to have something fun um, to, to play together when people come over. 
and to also enjoy it ourselves. And um, we have this small collection of board games right beneath our TV. So you can see it every time you kind of sit down on the couch. And this past week, I was just sitting on the couch and I it kind of entered my field of vision. A few board games that we have, like Sushi Go, um, Organ Attack, Chess, uh, Bananagrams. And I was thinking, you know, we, we haven't actually played these board games in a while. It's, it's, it's been ages. It would be nice to play maybe one of these together um, on our next date night. I was just thinking about that with, with Heidi. Um, she wasn't there at the time. Though. So I went over and I grabbed one of the, the board games. I grabbed a satchel of uh, Bananagrams, a yellow kind of satchel if you're familiar with it. Bananagrams is basically a game where you have a bunch of letters, right? And the, the aim is to sort the letters into words until you run out of tiles. And so I took out all the tiles and I laid them out on the table. And I was just started to practice a little bit because I felt a bit rusty, right? Um, you know, the three-letter words were coming pretty easily to me, pretty straightforward, you know, has, but, and. Then before I knew it, um, I was moving on to the five-letter words, right? A little bit more difficult. Um, brown, dance, <laughs> drive. And then I took out my phone and I started to Google, what are some easy seven-letter words? Ability, control and so on. And before I knew it, um, I found myself straight up Googling how to win Bananagrams. And I knew. I knew that I could not play Bananagrams with my wife because it would not end well. It was a moment of self-awareness. And I came to realize when it comes to board games, I'm competitive. Um, and competitiveness, what, what does that even mean? It's really the measure of a person's desire to, to surpass others at something. That's what competitiveness is. And here's the thing. All of us are competitive with something. Maybe you're like me, and when it comes to board games, um, or even video games, or any sport really, you're competitive. And you want to surpass others. You want to be better than others. Maybe for you, it's your career. You want to excel. You want to get ahead. You want to be recognized that you're better than others in your field. Maybe for you, it's parenting, right? It really matters to you that others see you as a competent mom or a competent dad, a competent parent who has kids that are kind of well put together. Or maybe you're competitive in how uncompetitive you are. Right, you want to be measured by how much you don't concern yourself with these other things that everyone seems to be so occupied about. But that is also a form of competitiveness. All of us are competitive in something. And it reveals in us this ambition that all human beings have. It's a baseline condition. We're all ambitious for something. We want to be great in something. And Jesus recognizes this desire in us. And from our passage, you can see that he recognized it in his disciples 2,000 years ago. You know, things don't really change very much when it comes to the human condition. And he doesn't actually shut it down. 
despite what you might think of Christianity as, you know, we, we think of these terms like humility. And maybe we kind of equate that as you just don't be ambitious at all about anything. Don't, don't seek greatness. Like it's just all poppy syndrome. He doesn't shut down ambition or greatness. He pushes back gently with a question. And it's a question that comes from Jesus in his position as the king. Not just a king, but the king of kings. Jesus is God, the one who is great above all others. The one who's able to do miracles. The one who's able to do exceedingly above all we ask or think. And the question he asks is, what do you want? Right? What do you want? I'm just wondering, if Jesus asked you that question today, what would your answer be? If he asked you, you know, what do you want? In light of the ambitions that you have, you know, maybe it's ambitions in career or parenting or your sport or you know, board games, uh, what, what, what would your answer be? What, what do you want? How much would it kind of coincide and line up with your natural sense of, I want to be great in this area? He asked this question twice in our text today to two different groups of people, and we see two different responses that challenges the way that we think about ambition and greatness and shows us a better way. So in our, pas- so in our passage, this is what's happening. Jesus is now making his way towards Jerusalem. That's significant because that's where he's going to go to die. And so he warns his disciples for a third time, hey, I'm going to be betrayed and condemned to death in Jerusalem, and then I'm going to rise again in three days. But just like the last two times, this warning kind of seems to go right over the heads of his disciples. And we're going to see that because what comes next is One of the mothers of the two disciples, James and John, she comes up to Jesus. And this is the first time that we see Jesus ask this question. Verse 21, what it says. And he said to her, what do you want? And this mother, she asks Jesus to give her sons the best positions in his kingdom. It's kind of like if you've ever seen an overly enthusiastic uh, mum who might have a couple of sons playing on a soccer team and they're not getting playing time, what, what do they do? They go up to the coach and they're like, give my sons more playing time. Give my sons a better role in the team. That's kind of what's happening here. And this is happening right after Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to die. It totally misses the mark, right? Because... He's just told his disciples, I'm going to do something voluntarily that is the opposite of greatness. I'm, I'm going to voluntarily be betrayed. I'm going to die a criminal's death on a cross. And then one of the mums of the two disciples comes up to him and, they, and she asks him, can you give my sons the best positions in your kingdom? kind of completely misses a mark. And we know this request actually came from James and John and not just their mom because we read, although she's the one who makes the request, when Jesus responds, he addresses them directly. Right, verse 22, look at it with me. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, 
James and John, we are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. So Jesus is saying, So you want to follow me as a disciple, you want to be in my kingdom, and, and you want to be great. You want, you want those prominent positions. You actually have no idea what you're asking for. And he says this line, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And James and John say together, we are able. A teacher of mine in high school, he used to say, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question. Uh, you know, because, you know, I, I think the, the motivation behind that was just ask any questions, right? Like, curiosity is great. So if you have a question, don't hesitate to ask it. But he did say, there might be no such thing as a dumb question, but there are dumb answers to questions. If you're giving an answer, be thoughtful. And that's kind of like what's happening right here. This is not a well-thought-out answer. It's hasty. It's a blind understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus has said to them, are you, are you sure about that? Do you really want what you're asking for? Are you able to drink from this cup of mine? And they say, yeah, we're able to do it. And we see that they're not alone in that because we, we read that joining them are 10 angry guys, the remaining disciples. They're upset because James and John got in first right, to Jesus to make their request to him. Make us great. Give us these amazing positions. And Jesus is so patient with them. right? I would find it really hard to be patient with him. Wouldn't you if you were in his shoes? If you've just told him, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. We're headed to Jerusalem. And your, your guys are like, okay, that's cool, but um, can you give us the best spots in your kingdom? He's so patient. He says, okay, you can follow me, but there's greatness that you're wanting, there's greatness that you're pursuing. It's not going to be the greatness that I have to offer you. It's not going to be like the Gentile rulers who lord their greatness over their people. This is a greatness that involves suffering and servanthood. Look at verse 25 with me. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's saying Gentile greatness involves no suffering, no servanthood. Kind of sounds like the life that we all want. right? The, the, the way that we think about the good life, a life that is, has minimal suffering and minimal servanthood. But Jesus says, that's not greatness, according to me. That's not greatness in my kingdom. My greatness absolutely involves servanthood and suffering. I was listening to um, a pastor speak uh, about his early days in ministry. Um, he's from the U.S., and he talks about one of his mentors um, who he heard preach at a youth conference. And his mentor started off his sermon by saying, my job today 
is to actually convince you to not follow Jesus. That's what he said. My job today is to convince you to not follow Jesus. Why would he say that? Well, I think it's because following Jesus is hard. It's often not what we think it's going to be. It's not the good life. It's not free of suffering and serving. I think we can forget that often. Jesus tells us straight up, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Being a Christian is tough. It's not great in the way that we think about greatness. It does involve suffering. It does involve servanthood. So how does this dissolve that desire we all have for greatness? That competitiveness that's inside all of us? Because it kind of seems to push us in the other direction. And here's where we come to the second time that Jesus asked this question. What do you want? So now Jesus and the disciples, they've come out of the city. And as they're walking out of the city, Jesus sees two blind guys on the side of the road. And they cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David, which was uh, the messianic title for Jesus. right? Saying that he was a promised king from the line of David. He was descended from that line, just like God had promised. And Jesus stops in his tracks. He doesn't just keep walking on. And he asks them in verse 32, what do you want me to do for you? Same question. What do you want? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? And they answer, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And I wonder if you can see the parallel here compared to the first time this question was asked to the disciples versus the second time this question is asked to these two blind men that he doesn't know. Right? Two disciples respond to this question of what do you want me to do for you? What do you want? They ask him for seats of honor in his kingdom. The second time, these two blind men on the side of the road, they beg for mercy from the king and they ask to see. Two disciples who could physically see, who had sight, but they actually couldn't really see who was standing before them. And it's ironic that two blind men who did not have sight could actually see and recognize Jesus for who he is. They cry out for mercy. And it's really interesting that Jesus asks these blind men, what do you want me to do for you? They've recognized who he is and the ball's in their court. Because a shrewd beggar a crafty beggar, a smart, clever beggar, you know, should have asked for eternal life or wealth beyond their wildest dreams or Jesus, heal my whole body. Make me super buff and super healthy. I don't know. But it's not just this. Or maybe they could have even asked for what the, Jesus, uh, for what the disciples asked for. Jesus, give me like the best spot at your right hand when you come into your kingdom. Because these guys actually recognize who he is, that he's the son of David. But it's so interesting that the only thing that the blind man wants is what a blind man needs to see. 
And Jesus has compassion on them. He touches their eyes and immediately their sight is restored and they follow him. And here's what this means for us. Number one, we must come to Jesus, not like James and John in this instance, but like the blind men. And we don't come to Jesus, or we do, but I'm pushing back. Jesus, I hope, is pushing back through this text. We, don't, we shouldn't come to him asking for all the things that we want in, in, in this life, right? Devoid of suffering and serving. But we should come to him crying out for mercy. Not asking for what we want, but asking for what we need. And what we need is to see him clearly for who he is. And I'm telling you, when we see Jesus for who he is, it'll change everything. We'll see that this Jesus is the one who, who, who himself suffered and served, and he died a criminal's death. And that doesn't seem so great at all, does it? And maybe the life of a disciple doesn't seem so great at all. But I think so often we forget that that's not all there is to Jesus. This Jesus who we follow rose again three days later. He rose from the dead. And what does that actually mean for us? Like, do you guys ever think about that? It means that right now he's in the presence of God, the Father, with the glory that he had before the world began. He's in glory. That's who we follow. And that's the pattern of greatness that we see in Jesus and in our lives when we follow him. Christianity is always downwards oriented. But the future is upwards. There's an initial downwards servanthood and suffering, but it leads to a greatness, a resurrection. But secondly, um, it means that we can be self, we can be ambitiously selfless. Like I said, I think there's a notion that a lot of Christians hold um, that says, you know, all ambition is is bad. Like, don't be ambitious. Just be a nobody. Um, and yes, ambition can be bad when it's used to hurt people and manipulate people. Uh, when it exalts yourself over others, uh, that's what we call selfish ambition. But to be to be selflessly ambitious or ambitiously selfless, uh, that's, that's quite a different thing. Uh, God uses that kind of ambition in, in powerful ways. But we see in the life of these two disciples who in this story, in this instance, they asked Jesus for the seats of power, right? the seats of prominence. But when they finally see Jesus for who he is, Right? When he dies, he rises again. And their lives change. John's immature request to be seated at his right hand, it turns into an ambitious selflessness that drives and nurtures the birth of the early church in Jerusalem. And James, and James is 
complete 180. You know, what starts off as a request, hey, give me the best seat in your kingdom, turns into an ambitious selflessness that sees him beaten, thrown from the top of a building and stoned to death for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, becomes a turning point, actually, in the courage of the church. See, as disciples, we should absolutely be ambitious. Not just for ourselves, not just selfish ambition, not just for our own pursuit of greatness, but ambitiously for others as a reflection of Jesus. It starts with our closest relationships and then expands. How can you be ambitiously selfless with your spouse? What would that look like for you? Or your kids, or your family, and your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, and your fellow Christians. When we come to Jesus and we cry out for mercy, and we ask him to give us not what we just want, but what we need, he'll open our eyes to see him for who he is. We'll see that Jesus, in his ambitious selflessness, he dies on the cross. And when you really see that, it actually releases you from your own selfishness and your own pride, which is sin. When we see him rise from the dead, it gives us hope for the future. That following him might be hard at times. It will involve suffering and servanthood. But there is an incomparable greatness to come. That is the trajectory of the Christian life. We become more and more like him in his death and in his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the one who had absolute power, the Lord Jesus, who chose not to Count that power and that status as something to be lauded over us. But he very willingly gave up his status. He gave up his greatness. He became just like us. uh, And he suffered. And he died to serve us. And Lord, I thank you that it's because of that that we have redemption, that we're forgiven we're saved. And Lord, um, I know for a lot of us, I know for myself definitely, I'm so often just going through life with this desire to be hate, this desire for acclaim. It can kind of be blinding. It can really color everything else that we do. And I just ask that you'd help us to Remember the greatness of the Lord Jesus becoming a suffering servant who died and was raised again three days later. But I really ask that you would help us to to see that and to, to mull on that, to be moved by that so that we too might be ambitiously selfless, that we'd be extravagantly selfless, that we would pursue that uh, in our relationships, 
uh, with each other and to the world around us, and that we would show people uh, with our lives who Jesus is and what the gospel is. We thank you in Jesus' name.